Hello and welcome to Strat News Global. I am Subrat Nanda and joining me from Washington DC is Alice Sherry, Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her new book, The Fight for Climate After COVID-19 is just out and today she will share her views on issues pegged to climate change. Alice, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry, who was in India earlier this week, wanted a commitment on net zero, but could not get it. India is pointing to climate justice, saying net zero alone won't help, and the mess should be cleaned up by those who created it in the first place. How do you see this playing out? Well, it's important to raise the climate justice issues. Unfortunately, all nations will suffer as the globe continues to rise uh, in temperatures. And that means that countries, both the United States and India, will suffer from greater heat waves, drought, bigger storms. We're already sensing this and experiencing it right now. But with the accumulation of greater carbon pollution, we will experience even worse events going forward. And so now is the moment for us to arrest this growing problem of a planet getting too hot for people to live on. Can these two views be reconciled? I believe so. I think that it's important for all nations now to focus on this critical moment and look at how we can stop unmanageable heating. Of course, because the accumulation of carbon pollution in the atmosphere forms a kind of blanket around the globe, we begin to heat up and there's a delayed effect. It's kind of like I remember when I was a child and my mother would come into my bedroom at night and she would put a blanket on me. Uh, and in the middle of the night, I'd wake up and I'd be hot because that extra layer or blanket covering me, heated my area up and I was too hot. And that's essentially what's happening around the world. We have a blanket of pollution. If we add more of that pollution, we get more heating. And so at this moment, we need to focus on reducing the heating. And then we need to address how do we help India and other countries power up get the kind of development that the United States has enjoyed, as well as adapt to the impacts from climate change that can't be avoided at this point. There will be further heating, there will be more intense storms, and there will be greater wildfires. Even if we got our carbon pollution to zero today, we would continue to warm because of that delayed effect of that blanket of pollution that's already out there surrounding the globe. So is there overemphasis on net zero? I don't think there can be overemphasis on net zero. This moment is very important. You know, the predictions for how much we warm are really sound like science fiction. But if we continue on our course and don't really tackle this problem, we could see five degrees Celsius, seven degrees Celsius of heating by 2100. That's certainly for a child being born today in many places, they could experience that. Of course, it won't just happen. The night before we turn to 2100, we will be heating up along the way. And in some places, it will become 
intolerable. Chatham House, the think tank, just issued a report saying that 400 million people could be at great risk and already 5 billion are experiencing extreme heat events. We need to cut that heating now, and that's why we need to focus on net zero. But we also need, importantly, to focus on helping other countries with their energy needs, and that should be green energy, as well as their needs for adaptation measures to deal with the impacts that can't be avoided. It's been 12 years since developed nations talked about a $100 billion annual fund for developing countries at the Climate Summit in Copenhagen. Has there been any progress on that front? There's been some, but it's been too modest. Uh, We need to do much better. There needs to be ambitions from the developed world to help the developing world with its challenges. And that means substantial finance being available. We should look at finance that is not only through loans, but actually grants. We also have a growing problem, a debt crisis for some of the emerging economies. It's becoming so expensive for them to borrow, and they have already such high debt service that it will be very difficult for them to tackle the challenge of climate change if we don't give some debt relief. So we need to step back and provide far more financing going forward, including concessionary financing as well as some debt relief. While in India, Kerry mentioned that six big American banks were ready with trillions of dollars of funding, but he also added a caveat saying it won't be concessionary. So will this help? Well, funding will help. Uh, Of course, we want to have more financing available to countries. We need to, uh, the world needs to look at how we can have greater ambition to help those countries who, as you pointed out, have had the least to do so far with contributing to the problem that we have with global warming. That has mostly been a result of the development in the developed world, uh, and that has caused much of the pollution that exists. However, countries like India and China now are major polluters, and we need to help them move away from polluting uh, industries, including power that pollutes, and get to green energy so that the planet doesn't warm up to intolerable, unmanageable, and basically create certain areas of the globe that are uninhabitable. Does the U.S. need to do more? We all need to do more. Absolutely. The U.S. needs to do more. Everyone needs to do more. And that includes India. India, in my opinion, all countries need to step up at this moment and look at what can we do to stop runaway heating to keep the globe safe for our children, our grandchildren, and frankly, for ourselves. India has committed to 450 gigawatt of renewable energy by 2030. It's almost achieved one third the target. Do you see it sailing through the course? Is it achievable? I hope so. And I think we should do everything to assist. And I think that we see in the recent partnership that is a focus and that needs to be the climate action here needs to be the focus. And the United States needs to help build the capacity to manage all of these things, including the transition that you described. Your book draws parallels between the pandemic and climate change. And you argue that more than mitigation strategies, adaptation is needed. Could you elaborate a bit? Yes, we will experience further heating because of this delayed effect of the accumulation of carbon pollution. And that heating brings really dire consequences for so many people. I mean, look at what's hit India this year, uh, extreme heat. Uh, You've had Typhoon Amphan recently. We're just seeing 
bigger, more dangerous events that hit populations extremely hard, particularly the most vulnerable, those who have the least economic resources to be prepared, the people with disabilities, older people. And we need to focus on how we can reduce the damage that will be caused by these worsening climate events. The last storm that we experienced will not be the worst storm, unfortunately. We will see bigger storms. So what can we do to help India with flood control, with making sure that there are cooling centers for its populations when heat events occur, looking at making these impacts less harmful to everyone, even though there's nothing we can do to stop them? How does a big country like India, which is still developing and has been focusing on sustainable development, go about its job? Well, I think you've had some wonderful examples. I think India on heat has been quite remarkable uh, in terms of um, spreading out through cities, heat plans, recognizing that there have to be uh, better plans in place to help populations during those extreme, more extended heat waves where temperatures really go higher than ever before experienced. So I think there are great uh, examples from India as that could be applied, for example, to my country uh, that we could learn from, that greater planning means there'll probably be better outcomes. But all of these things are going to be a challenge for all nations. And one of the benefits, I believe, is that the developed world could learn a lot from the developing world because sometimes uh, adaptation has been a requirement earlier on for some developing nations. Uh, And so we see, for example, ideas for flooding, to have floating schools uh, so that kids remain in schools uh, during flood events. Those kinds of sharing those ideas could help develop the developed world as well, thrive in a warming world. In the light of the recent IPCC climate report that says the time to act is now, what do you expect from COP26 in Glasgow? What I hope for is great ambition. I'm hoping that uh, the leaders of the nations that are a party to the Paris Agreement can come together and express great ambition It's really, as that IPCC report stated, we have a narrow window to avoid the very worst of heating. And that means we have to act now. We have to have transparent promises about how we will get to net zero. And we need countries to come forward with those in COP26. We also need greater focus at COP26 on the adaptation needs. And this will be very important, in my opinion, for emerging economies. They don't have the kinds of deep investments in flood control that we have, for example, in the United States. And so for those countries, we need to help them handle sea level rise, which will be an exist- is an existential threat for the small island nation states. We need to think through what do they need to succeed uh, as we see these impacts get much harsher in the near future. Is geopolitics holding up action, for example, between the uh, United States and China, the two big polluters? 
I hope it's not going to uh, hold up action. Certainly, uh, geopolitics has uh, reared its head uh, in recent years. There seem to be greater tensions. Uh, but at this moment, uh, we're all, I hope, focused on humanity, uh, and we can overcome these differences at this moment on this issue to have a healthy planet going forward. If we can't, uh, that's a sad statement about humanity, because really this is the moment for action. And if we miss this moment, we have basically condemned future generations to a permanently changed environment that will have largely negative impacts on their lives, their ability to survive and thrive. Final question. You have been a judge. Do you think there should be more stringent domestic legislation? I think at this point, uh, regulation is necessary to jumpstart the kind of focus on climate risk that is required. I'll give you an example. Uh, of course, um, we are a market-based economy in the United States, but we don't see corporations yet adequately addressing the types of risks that they will suffer from climate change. For example, disruptions to their supply chains, operations are shut down because of factories flooded, their personnel can't get to the workplace because of a wildfire, you name it. But they, whatever that climate risk is, we don't see our corporate leaders yet having identified those, nor have they identified the risks to their bottom lines from a transition to green energy. Having regulation in this space that allows investors to compare what different companies are doing would drive better action to reduce the risk overall. And that's why you see so many economies, the European Union, France, Canada, the United States, beginning to indicate that we this space needs to be regulated to get that kind of rapid action that's required at this particular moment. On that note, Alice, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. What a pleasure. <laughs>